Let's see if we can interview somebody. I have to be drunk too. That's the whole point. Oh. He right. tried to step up in the clutch. He could not achieve what he wanted. What's it like being a biology major at IU? It's great. I get to learn all the great parts about the female and male anatomy. To all the ladies in the place with style and grace, allow me to lace these lyrical dishes. What? what why are you laughing? I plead the fifth. Welcome to American Student Radio. I'm your host, Sarah Panfill. Today, we're bringing you stories with a theme of Under the Influence. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, okay, live... live... What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington... From Indiana University in Bloomington... This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. The first thing you'll think when you think under the influence is likely alcohol. Morgan Burris brings us a piece where she tries to get inside the heads of drunk bar hoppers, all while she's a bit inebriated herself. What's your assignment? My assignment? Well, I made it up. Uh, Our show is themed under the influence, so I am interviewing people who are under the influence, while I, too, am under the influence. That was me, drunk as a skunk on Friday night, explaining to Jonah Dakey what I was doing in the vid. I spoke to a lot of people that night. I talked about IU basketball. I got negged. Uh, One guy used the words female genitalia in every answer he gave me. But what made me want to talk to Jonah was not only the fact that he did not hit on me, though that was a huge plus. Just a quick side note. If you're a guy who hits on girls by subtly insulting her first... Stop that. It's mean, and no one likes it. Anyway, I wanted to talk to Jonah because I could tell from the very first second of the interview that he had something to say. I ended up talking to Jonah for 15 minutes, which is an eternity when you're intoxicated, and this is what he ended up telling me. Please enjoy. Let me pull him up. Okay, so the first question, what is your most treasured memory? My most treasured memory, okay, well, um, I'd have to come back to the memory that like brings me home all the time, and uh, it's not really one of those moments that brings you like those hallmark, buzz good, you know, oh my god, I feel so great, I feel so at home, it's more that the first memory I can associate with myself, the first memory that I associate with my home, my parents, was the smell of beer brewing in the kitchen. And my dad. And my dad is this massive six foot two guy. And no, I'm taller than him now, but at the time, you see a six foot two man, he's a giant in your eyes. He's a big lumbering character. And the smell of beer brewing and cigars at the back porch just sort of told me dad was home. And everything was going to be okay because dad was home. It was a rare moment, but daddy was home. It was a rare moment. Does that mean your dad wasn't often home? 
No, he worked 70 to 80 hour days. What did he do? He owned a pizza restaurant. He, uh, do, you, do you know uh, Pizza De Luca? Yeah, I do actually. Okay, so well, they used to have a more uh, sit-down location in the mall. And my mom did all the interior artwork. She uh, made sure that everything was really nice. And I used to go in like to work with him when I was five years old. And we would just make pizzas, me and my best friend Joey. We would make pizzas, we would roll breadsticks. And around seven or eight, when his parents, you know, when Joey's parents would come around to pick us up for school, he would take us away and we would go and uh, that'd be our day. I mean, you don't grow up knowing anything different. It's just sort of who you are. I mean, when I was five years old, I said my, I told my dad, I was like, Dad, I want a Power Rangers toy saber. I want like a toy sword. I wanted a Power Rangers toy saber. And he was like, okay, that's fine. What are you going to do to get it? So I went to work. By the time I was eight, I was going around the neighborhood mowing lawns. By the time I was nine, I had my own lawn mowing business. I mean, I've always been working. I've never known anything else. Now I'm going to ask, what's your most terrible memory? I'm kind of uh, pulled what to put on the record and what off the record. If you don't want to answer, that's completely fine. It's cool. It's cool. A, uh, a close family member decided that uh, it'd be funny to isolate my mobility and put a movie that was rather terrifying on loop in a dark room and proceed to leave me in that room without any way to get out for seven hours. What movie? It was the music video to Pink Floyd's The Machine. And I don't know if it was the official music video, but it was um, very reanimatrix-esque. Like humans in mech suits being torn out by machines and very bloody, very warlike. Sort of like anime meets mushrooms. Wow, and how did that affect you? Well, you know... You put a young boy in that kind of situation, it's going to have some effects. What kind of effects? I've never seen this video. I'm sorry, but this song is too amazing for me to kind of continue. Let's go on to the next question. To all the ladies in the place with style and grace, allow me to lace these lyrical dishes in your bushes who drop grooves and make moves with all the mommies. Back of the club, sipping my way is where you find me. Back of the club. Oh. What does, the last question was, what does friendship mean to you? It's sacred. It really is. Friendship has always had a special part in my heart because, you know, everyone tells you you have family, you have blood. But friendship is the family that chooses to be around you knowing full well what they're getting into. And that's beautiful. That's something you can't buy or earn. That's, that's something that someone has to choose. Do you have a best friend? I do. His name is Omar White. I met him in seventh grade. I, uh... The way I met him, he was the black kid that I was trying to beat in foot races back in football. I mean, I was like, I was, if I could just run faster than him, I swear to God, I'll be happy with myself. I at least beat one person. But then we ended up being in band together, and from then it's just been the most meaningful relationship I've ever had outside of my mom or my dad. Um, do you? When's the next time you plan to see Omar? I'll probably see him tomorrow to discuss the game. Does he go to IU? Yes, he does. We both go to IU. Well, that's great. Have it, has going to IU like strengthened your relationship together or what? what? Why are you laughing? I plead the fifth. How close and warm is your family? Do you feel your, fa- your childhood is happier than most other people's? 
No, I don't. I think that everyone's childhood is, you know, every person I think is born with a requisite amount of suffering built in, whether it's not, you know, from their family, from their friends, from the people around them. Everyone has, you know, allocated amount of suffering. And for me, it's no different. Was my family fucked up? Of course. We had our dysfunctions. But we saw some moments that were beautiful. We saw some moments where, you know, I was crying and felt alone. And a mother who I thought was, you know, way too distant from me to ever understand me held me. And I knew it would be okay. So, no, I don't think my family was any better than anyone else's. I don't think that my childhood was any uh, easier than anyone else's. But on the whole, I could have done a lot worse not to have them. Thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome, Morgan. Have a good night. Don't you just love drunk honesty? Sometimes I feel like I'm putting in 70-hour days like your dad, Jonah. Can't say I've ever ever been forced to watch a Pink Floyd video for hours on end, though. Anyway, drinking isn't the only way to get under the influence. There are constant forces guiding our actions, and one of those forces is that beloved network we call the Internet. And no matter where you are in the world, if you have access to the Internet, you've likely been put under its spell. Among other things, the Internet has given birth to political memes, like Bernie Sanders' dank meme stash or the classic Ted Cruz is a serial killer. There's even a website called politicalmemes.com, which claims to be a go-to source for political comedy. In some form or other, political satire has been around longer than the U.S. has been a country. But with the increase of these comedic pieces on the internet known as memes, political humor is changing at a rapid pace. Taylor Haggerty and Tristan Fitzpatrick bring you this piece about how memes influence our political culture. Like, oh, you know, the Great Recession was caused by too much regulation. Hello. You people know a lot about trucks. Bing, bing, bong. Thank you very much. You know, Gollum, the Constitution is my precious. <laughs> he has discovered that women go to the bathroom. I gotta be honest with you, I also went to the bathroom. This campaign seems ridiculous, but the reality is that there's a long history of humor used to make fun of politics and politicians. While memes are a more recent trend in political humor, political humor itself has been around since the early days of our nation. Benjamin Franklin's cartoon, titled Join or Die, which featured the colonies represented as pieces of a snake in 1754, is widely viewed to be the first piece of political humor in American history. The cartoon itself could become widely circulated through traditional print media of the day, and this is another important thing to remember with memes. Part of the reason they're popular is because they can be shared quickly with a large amount of people over the mediums available to us today, in particular the internet and comedy shows on TV. Another key figure in the early development of political satire was Will Rogers. One more thing I'll let you know about, I said it earlier, is the political correct thing. Politically correct, you know, I don't understand when we model ourselves after politically incorrect. How those two words end up in the same sentence is beyond me. Known as the cowboy philosopher, Rogers had a popular radio program from 1929 to 1935 in which he poked fun at the government and political figures. He even ran for president as a joke in 1928 to point out the apparent pointlessness in political campaigning. In any case, we're just kind of shooting from the hip here, and if anything doesn't work, it's all right. Just take it like it's like spam. You throw it up against the wall. In the early days of our administration, Nancy has been using marijuana on a daily basis 
and her personal observations and efforts have given her such dramatic One of the first pieces of political memes as we know them today was this remix of the Reagan's famous Just Say No speech, in which the president and the first lady implored the American people to just say no to drugs. Learning and listening. And one of the most hopeful signs I've seen is this new drug crack. The creator of the clip, Cliff Roth, was an audio engineering teacher in New York City in 1986. Roth sent the video off to various film festivals and museums in 1988, including the Museum of Modern Art and the Smithsonian, to reach a higher number of people. To enjoy life to the fullest and to make it count. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! While it's not considered to be a creator specifically of memes, Saturday Night Live has also played a role in political humor itself since its debut. The show premiered shortly after the Watergate scandal, and as a result, it's lampooned political candidates since its earliest days. From Chevy Chase's bumbling impression of President Ford... Betty, did you change the locks again? ...to oh. Tina Fey's parody of vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin... And I can see Russia from my house. The show has spared no expense at making fun of politicians in the 40-plus years it's been on the air. The future of political humor is being shaped by the sharing of memes on the Internet. But what do these memes have to say about politics in general? Do they offer specific messages behind their attempts to make you laugh? The answer, for the most part, is no. Most of these memes are devoid of intentional attempts at making fun of actual policy. They almost never offer explicit critiques of current politics. Images of Bernie Sanders holding cats and jokes that Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer may make us laugh, but they don't really offer any solid statements on policies or governmental actions. Their main purpose seems to be promoting a candidate to other meme-savvy internet users. Different studies have shown that political humor like cartoons and memes can influence voters' opinions, but they also have a negative effect. Satire, in particular, can increase a voter's feelings of alienation from the democratic process and cause them to not participate in politics at all. Memes cannot offer the same political critiques that satire and cartoons have in the past, but they can continue conversations about politics well into the future. With ASR in Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. And I'm Taylor Haggerty. This next story shifts from the political to the personal. Emily Beck speaks with Bloomington musician Peter Oren, a 20-something whose music and identity are heavily influenced by nature and social issues. Peter Oren is a musician from Columbus, Indiana. Right now, he's living in a house surrounded by a beautiful, slightly disarrayed permaculture experiment. Permaculture is ecological design, where a landscaper works with nature instead of against it. He's watching it for some friends, the owners. Peter keeps his instruments in the upper part of a repurposed barn. There's no heat, and you can hear the neighbor's roosters crow through the wall sometimes. He released his first studio album, Living by the Light, in February. Here's the title track. I've been living by the light of each day Sleeping the soft night slowly away Been keeping to the backwoods as much as I can A thousand acres ain't enough space for one man With a fishing pole and a fry
been good to be under only my own way losing losing some mountain the songs are often you know reflections of moments or feelings or you know states of being there's always going to be a love song to write or something about heartache and whatever else and um there's always going to be some social song to write and i'd like to you know i think that having a balance is good but at a lot of the time i feel like i should spend more time writing the social songs and feeling like that's you know some you know more important in a lot of ways than writing another love song but music is medicine and people need different things at different times much of his music focuses on nature and simple moments but he also writes songs critical of the social issues in america today like police brutality climate change and commercial agriculture the song you're about to hear is called CAFO, which is an acronym for concentrated animal feeding operation this white picket cage feels like a cafo without so much smell it's rigor mortgage and what's more is my house is just one of these cancer cells trying to find answers and trying to work things out through music so pull the song CAFO uh, you know I'm, I'm trying to you know, I, I think that one of the, the biggest things that I found that agriculture needs to change is it needs to be more diverse and involve less monoculture and uh, to be decentralized so that more people have a hand in it. You know, that song KFO tries to uh, grapple with that and grapple with, you know, how the power structure has kind of influenced the way that we live and, um, you know, a number of other things. You know, the first lines of CAFO, CAFO are, um, you know, this white picket cage feels like a CAFO without so much smell. It's rigor mortgage, and what's more is uh, this house is just one of these cancer cells. Or, it's something like that. And so it's like, yeah, it's problematic that, you know, the American dream is to own a house and that not everybody has access to that and that the wealth is so highly concentrated um, it's a very difficult uh, American landscape that we're growing up in, especially if you want to change things to be more sustainable. It's not, you don't have access to all of the resources that you necessarily need. So it's difficult to just jump in and go back to the land. With You know, one of the, the main things that prevents us from changing it more quickly is that the people who often are more interested in making the changes, like young people in particular or people without much money is that it requires money largely to find some way to invest yourself in the land. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is important is that you stick around to see your garden grow and to plant perennials that take years to grow. And, you know, you have to stay put. There's a Scott Russell Sanders book called Staying Put that is interesting to me. I think that the idea of investing in your community and investing in your garden over the course of time and building good soil is really what's um, lacking right now. But it's difficult when we don't have, you know, the ability to buy land for ourselves or to have access to it readily. It's not a, an easily solved problem because of the way that, you know, capitalism functions. You know, of course, you can you can find things here and there um, and make friends with the right people or or 
you know, cooperate such that people who do have access to these things can lend them to you and you, you know, in turn provide something for them. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's largely difficult to, to solve. When he was in college, Peter went to Norway, where he worked on a few farms and hitchhiked. After that, he returned to school at IU for his second year. During that second year, Peter got involved with the Occupy movement, which protests social and economic inequality. That was, uh, um, you know, a, a, a period of lots of learning about, you know, the world and coming to terms with things in different ways than I had been exposed to. So sophomore year was pretty interesting. Um, was arrested protesting a couple of times, once in um, D.C. and once at the Kelly School of Business at IU, uh, protesting, um, I think it was J.P. Morgan Chase uh, recruitment event there. And then I went back to school that fall and ended up dropping out because it didn't really make sense to me anymore. After quitting school, Peter started working at Blooming Foods and made a few EPs. He went hitchhiking and moved to Oakland for five months to get more serious about music. But he felt weird about the gentrification that was taking place and felt like he was doing harm to the community. So he came back to Bloomington. Okay. Do you think that this is where you want to end up? Or are you interested in, in staying put? Or I don't know. That's the thing. It's like I feel guilty for not staying put, but I feel, you know, in a lot of ways more compelled to um, get out and play shows. I think that that's kind of... Uh, I think that the rambling lifestyle might be a little bit still in my future. I haven't figured out the lifestyle that I want at all. I mean, I'm 24. I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what makes sense. You know, and, and Indiana is very familiar to me, and I don't really want to be, you know, one of those people who leaves one of the places that they think needs to change, and then therefore it never gets changed. Um, the brain drain sort of thing can happen in a place like Indiana or. So I don't know. You know, I'm I'm open to whatever. I'm not sure that Indiana is the place, but you know, of all the places, it seems like the place at this point in time. I think that this needs to be the year that I really hit the road and play some places that I haven't before. Yeah, I'm gonna have to play a lot of coffee shops and dive bars. I think around campfires. That's gonna happen this year. Do you have any sort of end goal? I don't know. I mean, I'd like to be heard. I'd, I'd like for my music to be heard, and I'd like to be able to support myself with my music. I think that what's most important is that I enjoy making music. It's it's a weird feeling because I feel like the, the world needs to change dramatically, and I want to have a hand in that, and uh, I want to, you know, see the change that the world needs. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, well, if I, if I don't pursue a career in something, then I'm just going to work at a grocery store all my life and, you know, volunteer in a, in a garden or something and try to make change in the community here and there. Um, but I feel like I have an opportunity with music to be heard and to um, communicate things that are important to me. And that could, in the bigger scheme, contribute to the, the change that the world needs if, uh, if I'm lucky and if, if my music communicates what I hope it does. You can hear more of Peter Oren's music at peteroren.bandcamp.com or on his YouTube channel. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Beck. While for some, music will always remain something personal and intimate, 
Sometimes an artist's work goes beyond themselves, far beyond, casting a wide net. Kendrick Lamar gained widespread acclaim when he won the Grammy for Best Rap Album, but before Lamar sprang into the world stage, he was K-Dot, a Compton teenager under the conflicting influences of gangs, drugs, and religion. Producer Emily Miles turned to a few rap enthusiasts for insight into the influences for Lamar's album, Good Kid, Mad City. My name's Adrian Matika. I'm an associate professor in the Department of English, and I teach a class called Rap Poetics. Uh, my name is Iu Mogus. I'm a freshman here at IU. My name is Elijah Pogues. Uh, I am a sophomore here at Indiana University studying journalism, and I'm a rapper. I think um, Kendrick kind of brought back to hip-hop, or brought back to the forefront of hip-hop's consciousness, the idea of uh, narrative. And for me, it kind of just uh, put an emphasis on what am I conveying here? Like, is this telling a thorough enough story? Um, can I really strike people with this, or am I not going deep enough? Um, really putting my vulnerability out there and putting my mistakes out there, you know. When the cameras is on me, I'm still going to show you, you know, because I know you can relate to it at the end of the day. He has a dedication to craft and a, an awareness of language that most rappers, even really great rappers, don't have. That's what makes it classic, is that even if they had the same agendas as Kendrick Lamar, they wouldn't be able to make a record like that. They wouldn't be able to uh, create a narrative from start to finish. It really takes you on a journey, and it becomes more of a conversation than a lot of other albums that <clears throat> have no sort of central theme to it or no sort of central story to it. Because in the story, you like you actually buy into the characters as you would if, if it was a movie, if it was a book, and you you see specifically in this album, you see Kendrick's character how he sort of changes depending on the uh, the situation that he's in his inner monologue, what he actually says, what he does, mm -hmm. and sort of the, the constant struggle that exists between, between his inner self and then that which he portrays to everyone else. And so Good Kid, Mad City was probably the first like, bona fide album that I listened to through and through where I was really experiencing rap music. And listening to that, I guess it, it was sort of the, uh, the gateway album that, <laughs> that pushed me into... I went back and I listened to Mo's Def. I went back and I listened to The Roots. I went back and I listened to Because of the Internet Again and 2014 Forest of Drive. And, and I, I, I started really looking at like rap as, as a, uh, a social expression rather than simply music that I was ready to write off. Me, I, I strive for emotional resonance because I can't tell, I, I can't, you can't tell the experience of your listeners uh, for sure, um, but I just try to be as genuine as possible. I say things that hurt a lot. Um, I mean, and by that I mean like, I am not afraid to dive into my own past uh, on a recording just because I know that's what people will feel. Right, right, totally. So what would, I mean, would you say that you have like a favorite track on Good Kid? Um, hmm. uh, if I had to pick just one, one or, one or two, uh, sing about me, sing, sing about, about me. me. I think that just because it's um, so it's, well, I mean you know, so it's a persona, it's a persona rap, 
with three different persona in it. And that's unique in and of itself because most rappers rap about themselves and they rap as a version of themselves. I mean, here you have Kendrick Lamar. One is sort of close to him. One is a totally different person. And then one is a, a woman. So not only is it just a different person, but a different gender entirely. So he's jumping into spaces. And I, and I remember hearing that song and thinking, why are people talking about this? Why are people not talking about the fact that he very elegantly executed this persona of a woman? Okay. You know what? It's time for the favorite track. What, favorite track. What, what are your favorite, what's your favorite track, favorite tracks on the album? Favorite tracks. Okay. So, Backseat Freestyle yes. is probably my favorite. And <laughs> partially, partially just because it's a great song. Like, listening to it, it's, it is a great song. But I, one, something that I really appreciate about it is how it fits into the story or the narrative of the, the album. Because it's a really, it it's, has a lot of bravado to it. And it's um, braggadocious. It's an incredibly braggadocious song. Yeah. And that was sort of what I how I saw like rap in general, or rap genre in general. And whenever you see it within the, uh, the context of the, the album, you see that that's him really putting up a front because he's, he's with his friends and you can really see him in the back seat of some van or some car just spitting lyrics and rapping with his, with his friends trying to impress them, trying to act tough. And it's so ridiculous. And the thing that I like about that is because it sort of shows, at least how it fits within the narrative of the, the album, is that it sort of shows that like the, the single story narrative that we think of, when, that is often thought of whenever we think of inner city youth, is, is sort of like turned on its head in, in the sense that this is a, a kid who doesn't actually believe that, but he feels like he has to, to act that way in order to, to fit in with the society. So it shows that there are these little, there are these individuals that, although may put on some sort of, some sort of face or some sort of front for, for their friends, there's a, uh, they, they, they struggle with that. There's someone different inside. And then it then leads me to think about all the other friends that he has in the car with him. It affected me because it showed me it forced me not to accept that that single narrative story, that whatever whatever people the stereotypes that people assume about any city youth that maybe they're thugs, that they're violent, that they don't have any sort of sense of of right and wrong, or whatever people might say. I think that this album sort of again it challenges that by saying like these are individuals who have to to live in a, in in a community that forces them to act in a way in order to have friends, to be social, to make it through the day, frankly. Whenever you get to have like that single individual story, whenever you get to see that within the greater context of, of, the com of what they're doing and what the community was, was sort of pushing them towards, you sort of see that they're equally as complex as I am and they have the same struggles, they have the same fears, they have the same dreams and aspirations. I think he's a great example of what it means to pay attention to who came before as yeah. a as an artist, right? He is aware of his position. He's uh, he understands he's standing on the shoulders of giants, but he also understands that he's he's inspiring and influencing a generation that will come after him too. Had a dream. Listen to where the stories are because that's where the best music can be found. That's probably that's what you're gonna love. <laughs>
For American Student Radio, out of Bloomington, Indiana, this is Emily Miles. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast from 99.1 WIUX LP Bloomington every Sunday at noon. Since this week's episode is under the influence, we asked some of our producers what they feel like they're under the influence of. Here's what they said. Probably sugar. I'm like, I have such a sweet tooth. It's so bad. It's probably not good, but it tastes so good, though. Well... As I have uh, various mental illnesses, I would say that those are the largest thing I'm under the influence of, like depression and anxiety and unfortunate things like that. This is a little sad, but I would say those are the things that most frequently influence me as a person. I'm under the influence of stress and way too much homework in my life. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and on Facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Or you can follow us on our website at americanstudentradio.org. Now back to the show. In this next piece, we take one last look at music's influence with a twist. Elijah Heath explores two communities he's navigated between during college, the music and fraternity scenes. Hello. What is your major? We are about to begin. I really hope that you do not scream what's your major before I <laughs> I will kick your ass. <laughs> That's a low-quality iPhone recording of my band rehearsing. We call ourselves What's Your Major. Um, let's see. We're What's Your Major. This is Elijah. I'm James. We're going to play you some, some fine tunage. You like it. So, yeah. In the past year, I've devoted myself more and more to music. But most of my friends in the music scene would be surprised to know this isn't the only community I'm involved with. I'm a member of TKE, Takap Epsilon, an off-campus fraternity consisting of approximately 100 men. I guess you could call me the Hannah Montana of Indiana University, going between the music scene and the fraternity scene. And if you know much about these two communities, they don't exactly mesh well yeah so um sorry in advance to anyone this offends but i am not a fan of greek life at all that's my friend james freeborn for him it's always been about music me and my roommate have a joke when we go home for you know a break or something and we come back and he's just like well are you ready to be treated like a second class citizen again i'm like (laughs) yeah that's kind of what it feels like because there's just this certain like How do I put this? It's like this kind of pretentious vibe. So yeah, I guess I'm not a big fan of those kind of people. They just always seem very shallow to me and not very real. But again, like to each his own, you know, like there's a lot of people that really thrive in that environment. And I have met, you know, some very, very cool people. But yeah, I got a, by the way, I got a bid to uh, TKE, which is like an off-campus prep. Oh, you really did? Oh, I (laughs) forgot about that. You did bring that up before. Unlike James, I took my bid to talk at Epsilon. When I think about being in a fraternity, I remember the hours training in the SRSC on the stationary bike for Little 500, working until 4 a.m., driving people around for parties in a friend's smelly and polluted car that reeked of cigarette smoke. And of course, the parties. 
where I would immediately go to the dance floor and pull off my goofy dance moves and attempt to swoon the ladies. Go figure. Are you proud to be a member of TKE, or do you feel like sometimes skeptical of being a part of a fraternity? No, I mean, it's for sure, I would say the greatest thing I've done in, in, in college thus far. I mean, And that's Wyatt. Like me, he's a member of TKE, Talk App Epsilon. You know, the reason being is because, you know, I made whatever it is, 89, you know, 90 new f friends, obviously, but... You know, these aren't just guys that I'm going to talk to you for the next couple of years. These are guys who will, you know, most likely be, you know, in my wedding and, you know, f further on than that. And, you know, I think it was really kind of rewarding to build these, you know, uh, lifelong friendships. But unlike Wyatt, I can't say TKE is the best decision of my life. For me, becoming a musician has been the best decision I've made. And it's how I've formed what I hope will be lifelong friendships. I started playing piano at 10 years old, and now I'm in two bands, What's Your Major and Raleigh's Ghost. But I was eager to find out what drew people like James Soley to the musician side and what drew people like Wyatt to the fraternity side. What influenced you to be a member of Talkap Epsilon, TKE? So for Teak, um, actually my grandfather was a Teak as well, um, and so... When I became interested in joining, that was really kind of the only one that I looked at, um, and it was f for that reason. As a um, as a transfer student here, you know, coming in as a 21 year old junior, you know, I don't get to you know live in the dorms or anything, so I don't really have a way to meet new people, and I think that's kind of what caused me to go Greek to begin with, though. I can't say it was a family member who had influence on me joining TKE. It was one guy, Jimmy Mendez. He can be abrasive, especially after a few shots, but damn, is he one of my favorite people. As my grandmother would say, he could sell snow to an Eskimo. And he sold me on TKE, on the brotherhood, on the family. And I can't say he was wrong about any of it. I'm just not Jimmy. <laughs> I don't think he's ever been in the music scene in Bloomington unless it's a show at the Bluebird. Do you know anything about the music scene in Bloomington? Uh, in Bloomington, not really. Um, I mean, I know a couple of guys who are in, you know, music programs, and that's really all that I know. Wyatt, Jimmy, and from my experience, a lot of people involved in Greek life don't know much about the Bloomington music scene. I can't blame them. Fraternity life is so prominent, so prevalent on this campus that people see it as easy access to make new friends. It's a way to get drunk, a way to hook up for people that don't just want to go to the bars a way to socialize, and a way to just feel like you're a part of something bigger. And I get it, because all of these were incentives for me. And I still feel a need to be a part of something bigger, I guess. But lately, I've found that connection through music. The music scene is much more obscure, and it has a smaller audience. It's a self-organized group, people gathering together on the south side of Bloomington, to drink, listen to music, smoke cigarettes on the porch, and for people to socialize. And honestly, is that so different from fraternity life? Here's James again, the guy I played drums with, and the guy you just heard playing the guitar. Would you say the fraternity scene is um, a group of like conformity and the music scene as a bunch of individuals, or do you see like the music scene as people that conform as well? 
honestly, you could look at it in the way that they're both very conformist. <laughs> like, there's a lot of, you know, like amongst the music scene, you've got a lot of jean jackets and a lot of like leather jackets and a lot of like crazy colored hair on the girls and then in the fraternity scene you have obviously like the sperries and the salmon shorts and the button downs however you look at it we as people are influenced to pursue our interests in order to feel significant sometimes that leads to the dismissal of the other groups around us believing that our personal choice the only correct one I guess if I had to pick, I'd say I feel that expressing myself through music is what I'm meant to do. When I make music, I'm producing something. However, sometimes I feel like I'm drinking my life away when it comes to the fraternity. I believe music makes me feel like a rock star. Makes me feel special. A friend of mine asked me if I regret joining a fraternity, and it's true. I'm not always comfortable talking about that choice. But like most people, I'm learning not to regret those choices that have made me, me. I guess that's all we can try to do. To recognize our influence and pursue our own truths, however unconventional or conventional they may be. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I am Elijah Heath. Moving away from the personal and to an area in which the personal and the public intersect, we're going to talk about terror. The mere word terrorism can evoke deep emotions in people, fear, anger, frustration, sadness, for a variety of reasons. In light of recent attacks across the globe, producer Nissa Cruz set out this week to delve into the influences of terrorism. After terrorist attacks in Brussels killed dozens and injured hundreds more this week, American Student Radio decided to ask people how they feel like the United States and the world have changed under the influence of terrorism and how attacks in other countries can influence our country. Here's what they said. I think we've become a little more fearful. Um, I think citizens are not taking everything for granted anymore. Um, and that we have to be more defensive. Well, I, I, I think that uh, we've become a lot less kinder of a nation and accepting of others and suspicious, I would say. You took my word. I was just going to say suspicious. I think people have become, have become suspicious. I feel like um, we're a lot more protective of our country, I guess. Um, the people have started turning against their neighbors and other people who appear to be different from them. And so they, a lot of, one of the main um, beliefs is that we should try and tighten our security and not let so many people in to the United States. But you can't do that because that's pretty much against democracy and what it's all about in the United States. And how do you feel like the world has changed? Um, quite a bit. I feel like the whole world is under attack of these evil people. Mm-hmm. And I do think they're evil. I, I give them no chances. None. If we focus too much on just the terrorism, terrorism putting the words out there, seeing that, that, that that'll instill a fear that maybe isn't really there. There are parts of the world that are just under a lot of duress right now because of what's going on in their home countries. I don't know. I honestly think that we're in shock. I think that most people are kind and loving and accepting and can't understand why someone would want to hurt them or blow themselves up. I also think that perhaps there's a feeling of 
that it's not real almost because of being hard to accept it I guess you know not being able to fully fathom and, and for me especially it's like you see these horrendous things and I can't figure how someone can do that so it, it might come to being difficult to accept it so how do you feel like um, an attack in another country influences the United States Like it makes us like wonder if that could happen to us again, and um, makes us want to help them. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Nissa Cruz. Sometimes terror and fear can lead to extremist reactions, including hatred and violence. This week, American Student Radio partnered with a new podcast in Bloomington, The Hijabi Diaries, which was created by Anna Maidee and Aubrey Cedar, and features the stories of Muslim women in Bloomington and what it means to go under the veil. Through the project, they hope to dispel stereotypes and Islamophobia. ASR producer Sophia Salaby talked to the podcast creators to understand how a climate of fear motivated a campaign of understanding. Good afternoon. My name is Aubrey Cedar. I was born and raised in Bloomington, and I live, on, I live on the East Coast, and I'm now back home for a few months in Bloomington. Yesterday, in the aftermath of the attacks on Paris, I couldn't help but feel scared for the Muslim community of Bloomington. The horrible assault on one of the women in your congregation that happened a few weeks ago already shook up the town and proved their Islamophobic beliefs, even in a fairly liberal and loving place like Bloomington. I am now afraid more ignorance and hatred will come your way from individuals who use the attacks on Paris as justification for their hateful beliefs, words, and actions against Muslims. After the Paris attacks last November, Aubrey Cedar sent this email to the Islamic Center Bloomington. She offered her support to the Muslim community here and asked if there's any way she could help. And that's when she met Anna Maidi. My name is Anna Maidi, and I am the Women's Committee President at the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the founder of the Open Hearted Campaign. The Open Hearted Campaign encourages understanding between Muslim Americans and non-Muslims. So Anna sent Aubrey an email back, inviting her to visit the mosque to talk. When she said, yeah, like, come meet with me, it was, like, more than I'd ever thought I would get a response. I thought I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, just, like, just, like, be nice to people and, like, be good and that'll be fine. Like, you don't need to help or whatever. But she was like, yeah, come and meet me and we'll talk about it, which is... To her credit, though, she had all, all sorts of ideas to offer. Like, in her email, she just said, I want to help. And I was like, well... I don't really know how she can help, but <laughs> but I'll meet her and see what she has to say. And then she came in with all these great ideas, and it was like, well, yeah, let's do that stuff. Like, let's reach people. That's when Aubrey and Anna came up with the Hijabi Diaries, a podcast that starts every episode with the phrase, Muslim women speaking for themselves. The podcast features personal narratives and interviews of Muslim women in Bloomington and aims to challenge stereotypes about women who choose to wear hijab or other traditional head coverings. When you cover, you're basically saying that, you know, I'm going to be in control of what you see and I'm going to be in control of how you perceive me. And that's a very powerful thing. So a lot of these women, you know, want to share that and that's something that I think is important for people to hear because often what people are hearing is that it's in fact just the opposite, that it's 
that when you cover, you're taking away your voice, you're taking away your power. Because so much misinformation has been spread about hijabis, Aubrey was actually cautious in the beginning of the project because she wanted to make sure it was the women's voices, not hers, that were heard. I had a really big reservations about that before I came in and talked to Anna, and I think what um, we just made really clear is that the project is about, like my role in it was about facilitating other people to tell their own stories. And for Anna, this project is about education just as much as it is about providing support to her own community, especially after the attack of the Muslim woman at Sofer Cafe last October. I want to make a difference for these sisters. I don't want them to be afraid of living in their town. (laughs) You know, I want them to feel safe and welcome here. So if we can make a difference with this campaign, even just in Bloomington, that's huge to me. Similar to Anna, Aubrey hopes the project will have a huge outward impact, but she's found that she's been personally been affected by producing the podcast. You know, I wish that everybody could, that was listening to the podcast could have my experience because, you know, I, gave, I got into this to, to share with others and experience of other people. Um, but I was, I'm really the one having like the greatest and, most, and the most rich experience because I'm getting to understand like how close Islam is to how to American values and um, to values of kindness and love and compassion that we all share and that we all aspire to. And in a way, Aubrey, even though she's not a Muslim, has become a member of the community. Honestly, it's just felt like she's been getting to know us and getting to know the community, like, person by person. And <laughs> it's been great. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's been a really nice process, and it's been really nice for me to get to know her, too. It's been yeah, really great it's been so fun. With you. I know you can family. find the Hijabi Diaries yeah. on SoundCloud and on their website at muslimsofbtown.wix.com. For American Student Radio, I'm Sophia Salaby. Now you'll hear an abridged version of the Hijabi Diaries' first episode with Abdir. The Sisters of the Islamic Center of Bloomington invite you to explore hijab from a personal perspective. We want to share the importance of hijab, why we choose to wear it, and what it means to us, in the hopes that by listening to our stories, you will come to better understand who we are as Muslims, women, and humans. The Hijabi Diaries. Muslim women speaking for themselves. Okay, so this is on right now? Mm-hmm. It's, it's recording? On. It's recording, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, don't want to so much time. Living in a country where covering is a norm, I never blinked at the thought of wearing my hijab. It was part of my everyday outfit. Everyone wore one, or many. It was part of the wardrobe, and its different designs served different purposes. I had a, I had a different cover for work, another for parties, and another for family gatherings, etc. However, when I moved to the U.S., covering became an option. It was no longer obligated by the society. I didn't have to wear one to fit in. On the contrary, I knew that I would be categorized and in some cases may not be accepted in some groups. So covering was not the norm anymore. And if I decided to cover and wear my hijab, it was going to be a portrayal of my identity and values. I asked myself if putting myself out there, would it risk my safety, my children's safety, because they were associated with me? I mean, so many people misunderstood my religion and my country. Did I really want to jeopardize our safety because of their ignorance? I have to be honest, my choice to study in the Midwest was intentional. I grew up in the Midwest, and I remember that people surrounding us were kind, accepting, and respectful of my family. Nevertheless, for extra precautions, I decided that I did not want to wear my hijab. 
I would wear modest clothing and maybe a cap, but I would not wear anything that would make me stand up. So I arrived to Bloomington and I joined the community just as another IU student. It took me a whole year, but I was surprised to find safety in displaying parts of myself. I didn't expect that at all. I got to know women who wore their hijab and others that didn't. People were different wherever I went. And when those people took the initiative to know me, they appreciated me for who I was and where I came from and what I believed in. They were curious to learn more, and I enjoyed answering their questions and inquiries. I even found myself taking pride in talking about my values. So I started praying a lot and asking Allah for strength to recognize this blessing. Eventually, one beautiful day in spring, I put my headscarf on and I left the house. I was smiling. I felt happy and content. I wasn't hiding anymore. I wasn't afraid of being judged. I felt normal. And I struggled to find that feeling from the start. And I thought it was going to happen through blending in. But I found out that normal was just about being all me. All right. Just like talk, talk to us about who, who, what are you about? Who are you? I'm like, a mom. <laughs> I'm a mom. I think... I think that in itself is can just explain a person holistically mm-hmm. about you know because everything you do you do it because you're a mom. I think I study because I'm, I'm, I'm I want to do things for my kids. I whatever decisions I make, I do it for my kids. If I cook, I'm thinking of my kids. If I anything that I'm doing, I mean even wearing my hijab was also for my kids because mm-hmm. I mean one of the things that I struggled with is how am I going to explain wearing a hijab to Lara. I know it's right, you know? Mm-hmm. How am I going to explain to her that there's fear associated with it? And that's um, that, that that's hard. So, but, you know, but if you don't have kids, you can choose to ignore that and keep on going. You're not, I feel like I'm being held accountable by my mm-hmm. kids. And and, um, and it's, it's a big responsibility. On, on the other, on a lower level, um, just a little bit lower, I'm a PhD candidate at the um, School of Education. I, um, my thesis is about, um, it's about culture. So oh. it's about how students, and specifically um, females from the Arab Gulf, how they acculturate and how they adjust, and what could help them, well, eventually, what I hope that comes out of this uh, research, what could help them actually become um, better adjusted I have a motto, and it's mine. <laughs> I'm going to say it's mine, a copyrighted. Um, a happy student is a successful student. And just looking at a student as a person who's just going to be carrying out academics and, and science, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're graduating a whole student into the society, and it's just very important to look at all aspects. I was afraid of people actually attacking me I mean I don't know I, I don't know how I would feel like that because it's not a barbaric environment anywhere but I, I just felt like people are going to be attacking me and what am I going to do if somebody decides suddenly that they hate me so much that they're going to hurt me and then um, it wasn't just me it was um, also my kids we, go, them going to school they're young none of them have anything that really shows what their identity is but um, I just felt really scared that I would associate them with my identity and then they would be picked on at school and bullied and my you know that at that level they were you know they're still elementary they don't, they're not mature enough to know how to handle issues like that and I just did not want to introduce that world to them I wanted them to live their happy childhood and not really think about oh my god that person is going to say something about me mm-hmm.
but I can say that once I did, um, I mean, some of the things that actually made me um, feel more comfortable is the welcoming that I found in my kids' classrooms. And so the teacher um, and, and my, my son's second grade teacher, she was the first one who, you know, talked to me. She's like, I would love for you to come and talk about your culture. <laughs> and so I came in and I talked about our holidays and I intentionally put a lot of pictures of my kids, um, you know, dressed formally, you know, in all their really nice um, um uh, surrounded by family, lots of sweets and stuff like that. And I could see my son so puffed up and proud. And I was like, yes. You always stay close with your kin. And may he make all your enemies friends. May he make reality of your plan. I don't know. I just really wish that things were just a little bit more comfortable and safe in, 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 on the inside. I mean, I can't, you know, it's hard sometimes to go outside when you see something suddenly coming up on the news, you think, okay, I want to avoid going outside for a little while. Wow, that's really, I would never think about that, that like you see something on the news and you're afraid to go outside. I am, I that's am. That's a huge... It, it, it's, it's, it's been happening. I'm afraid to go, going to the supermarket, I would definitely do that on the evenings if I'm missing something on my mm -hmm. grocery list. I don't do that anymore. And, um, and that's, that's disappointing for me. The Hijabi Diaries podcast is produced by Anna Mighty and Aubrey Cedar in association with the Islamic Center of Bloomington and the Open Hearted Campaign. Special thanks to Abir, who you heard from today, for sharing her thoughts, to the ICOB for letting us use their space to record this podcast, and to you for listening. Find out more about the Hijabi Diaries podcast at www.muslimsofbtown.wix.com slash hijabi diaries thanks again for listening thanks again to the hijabi diaries and abir for sharing her story you can look them up on their soundcloud or at their website muslimsofbtown.wix.com anna's organization the open-hearted campaign is also sponsoring an open-hearted open house at the islamic center of bloomington on april 10th We'll link to the details on our Facebook page, so check it out if you're interested. That's it for this week's show on Under the Influence. Next week, join us as Abby Gibson and Nissa Cruz take us to the fringe, exploring stories from the edges of society. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 